You're listening to the ESP, the European Skeptics Podcast, an independent weekly show set up to bring you news, interesting topics and interviews with people mostly from Europe, building bridges and breaking down language barriers to show the world how active and awesome the skeptical movement is in the region. This is episode 408. I'm your host, Andras Pinter, and joining me for the show are my co-hosts, Annika Harrison and Pontus Böckmann. Sjastok! Hallo! Hey, San! Hey, San! Andras! Hey! Yes, are you back? I'm here! Oh, good, good, <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> oh, you mean, you mean back from the other end of the planet? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> the planet has no end. It's quite a round shape. How was the other end of the planet? Was it good? Yeah, it was, it was pretty good. I mean, um, it was... It was extremely, extremely hot and humid. Wow. This is the rainy season in mm-hmm. uh, Malaysia and Singapore. So basically every day you are to expect some rain. Wow. And this time of the year, it's a little bit more. And around the 30 degrees Celsius range. Wow. Uh, so about, uh, uh, yeah, quite a difference when I got back home. But I have to say that I prefer this. I prefer yeah. the six to seven degrees. I would be much happier with a bit of snow. I understand you've got a, quite a bit of snow in Sweden, Pontus. Ah, uh, we did get, but now it's gone again. So, uh, yeah, it's. Ah, uh, uh, you should you should be living up in Stockholm because the friends of mine say that it's still very nice up there. If it's only for the snow, yes. So yeah, you're too far down south. That's yes. That's your this problem, is like right? the Riviera of Sweden. So. <laughs> But, um, we should get anyway, there sometime. It's good. So, Annika, no snow with you either? No, still not. <laughs> still nothing? Okay. No. Too bad. Oh, so but. sad. At least some cold? No. <laughs> not even no. cold weather. So. No, it's just raining and drizzling. And mm. Oh, fuck. Is this some kind of um, global warming going on or what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that's the case. And we're also just too damn close to the Rhine Valley. And the Rhine Valley is usually a bit warmer. Mm. <laughs> Bloody rhinos all the time. <laughs> <laughs> rhinos. Okay, okay. Exactly where the rhinos go dry. <laughs> Andras, while you were away, there have been developments in Europe. Did you know? In Europe. Uh, Orban's not gone. I know for, know for sure. Just want to mention very quickly that the political situation in Poland has changed. It was not unexpected. The, the election was uh, some time back. But it is interesting that in Poland, of all places which has been under the rule of the piss party for so long, there, of all places, finally people have instead voted for what seems to be, promises to be, can be, a sensible and rational government. We'll, we'll see about that, of course. And this is not a political podcast, but I just want to remind people that the piss party has received no fewer than six really wrong awards from us, so we are not sad to see Ooh. them go. They have been receiving awards for criminalizing sex education, for anti-vax statements, implementing so hard bans on abortions that at least one woman that we have talked about here on the on the show has died from being forced to try to carry a pregnancy to term, even though there was no chance that this would go well for, for either the baby or the mother. So that terrible stuff. Good to see them go. Yeah. <laughs> Donald Tusk. No, well, what, what? how do you say it? Donald Tusk? Tusk, I think he's... he's... Tusk. Write in. Or, I mean, send your pronunciations to info at the ESP.eu and we will <laughs> sort that out. Anyway, this guy, he is now appointed new prime minister and it's been a long debate because they tried to delay the stuff. 
the Peace Party still wanted to, they tried everything to uh, not having to surrender power. Now they have done that. But there will still be a problem, I think, because at least rumor says, and it's not hard to think that it's true, filled the public system with supporters of the old government over these eight years, right? So there is a fear now that these people will try to sabotage the decisions of of the new government. Yeah. And in addition to that, it is still a very strongly Catholic country where people do not always subscribe to free abortions. And there will be... um, I'm sure there will be problems for the new government to implement the, the changes. But it's strange that in this, these times where we see country after country falling yeah. for more and more populistic regimes, then in Poland, of all places, suddenly there is something that at least promises to be a democratic and, and sensible government. Yeah, hearing hearing the results from the Netherlands, uh, that was really depressing. So we we really needed this uh, small piece of news that uh, gives gives us hope. Yes. Yeah. So the Polish went from being pissed to pissed off, or <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Could be. Could be. I mean, that's your. They have your, been that's your pol- political they have been assessment. Pissed on for for eight years. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. <clears throat> okay. Anyhow, with those news, we are quite energized to share a lot of other stuff with with our listeners as well, right? So let's crack on with the show, shall we? And as usual, at least when I am present, this week in Skeptical History, also known as Twitch. This week marks the 122nd anniversary of an event which was a scientific and technological breakthrough and quite a milestone as well. It happened on the 12th of December 1901, and the actual event was the sending of the first radio signal across the Atlantic Ocean. The first email. The first, not the first email. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure that the first email was sent through cable, actually. Ah. Oh yeah, okay. um, when you yeah, think about right. it. Um, but Marconi was working with radio waves and the most important thing used for communication towards the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century was uh, the telegraph. There were large networks of telegraph cables built across Europe and uh, North America as well. But the problem was that it all required the wire itself. Mm. Now, Marconi was not alone in developing some kind of transmission of signals between points at a larger distance from each other wirelessly, and that's, that was the most important part of it. In 1896, he demonstrated in the UK the first transmission of a signal within a room. Like, imagine that there was a transmitter and there was the receiver. And on the receiver end, there was a little bell that rang whenever it got the signal. And Mm. he started the signal through the transmitter by pushing the button, as usual. This is how they used the telegraph in general. But this time, there was no wire between the two sets. And it amazed people. So a lot of it became regarded as some kind of magic. So 
So a lot of people, common people who didn't have the slightest understanding of how physics works and how electromagnetic waves work, they saw it as something scary and something exciting at the same time. Very, very spooky. But he started developing the process and the method itself so far that in a couple of years' time, he could transfer the signals from a distance of a couple of kilometers. But then, in 1901, the distance that the signal traveled before reaching its destination was about 2,100 miles, or about 3,300 kilometers. He thought that it was because of the long carrier wave that uh, he used it for. Um, it wasn't really considered a carrier wave back then, because for a carrier wave, you need a more elaborate signal to put on that wave to travel on. But this time, it was only short bursts of a signal on and a signal off, signal off, signal on, on. And this was what was transmitted. So it was not really a radio signal per se. It was just a radio wave that either traveled or not traveled, depending on whether it was on or off. It was controlled by a button. And the transmitter was in the United Kingdom. This is how it becomes very European as well. It was in Cornwall, and the station is still there. Uh, there is a memorial in the town of Poldu, and I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly because it's a very weird spelling that it has for a place in the UK, which is not in uh, Wales because then it would be normal. But but unfortunately, <laughs> it's not. It's, it's in Cornwall. So it's in England, in the southwest of England. And anyhow, the signal went to something that, that is now called Signal Hill in St. John's, uh, Newfoundland in Canada. They had a question, couple of attempts. Question. Yeah. How did he know if it worked? He was on the receiving end. Oh, okay, okay. You have to synchronize the watches. And you oh, say, yeah. at this point, you yeah. will p press the button and then yeah. I will listen for the little bing. That's okay. correct. That's correct. Now, the problem was, it wasn't 100% clear. I mean, when there was a signal or not, because you can imagine with those antennas, there came a lot of noise as well. So it's like, uh, whatever's going on, it was difficult to work out whether it was an actual signal. But as the technique developed in the coming years after that, it was really cool and it became more and more clear. The uh, types of antennas that were used developed as well. So one of the brilliant things about it was that it was like a makeshift antenna array that he, they had to use at the uh, transmitting end because there was a big storm that hit just a couple of days before the experiment was supposed to go on. So they just put together a new one, a new set of antennas, and, and it worked. And on the receiving end, there was a kite used for the antenna cable to be lifted up all the way to the right elevation so that it can actually receive the signals. It was it was amazing how primitive from from <laughs> our perspective now how primitive that system was, and it worked. And you like this, uh, Pontus? A couple of years later, he started working with uh, shorter wavelengths because that was a long wave uh, signal, and th that came with a lot of difficulty. For example, 
it can kind of travel following the curvature of the Earth, but the signal strength diminishes very, very quickly. So probably what happened, which doesn't always happen with long wave radio waves, but it probably bounced back from the ionosphere of the Earth. And this is how it Lucky. could travel to that distance. Yeah. So, but we all know now, but they had no idea. So only a couple of years yeah. earlier, had they realized that radio signals existed, they knew about electromagnetic waves. They knew that, that light are made up of electromagnetic waves mostly. But yeah, radio waves were, were a new thing. And he started yeah. working with the shorter wave signals all the way into microwaves. And in 1932, he developed a radio telephone link and he made that link between the Vatican City and the Summer Palace of the Pope in Castel Gondolfo. Okay. I thought it was from the Vatican to God. That would have been more impressive, I think. Well, <laughs> yes. I think he he was very science minded, so I'm pretty sure that okay. he, he wouldn't okay. have he wouldn't have attempted the impossible. <laughs> so yeah, he went for something that he believed could be done. And that was a microwave radio telephone link. Mm. Who could have thought that the Pope and the Vatican was so scientifically minded that they allowed for these spooky experiments? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm wondering, was it Paul Pius XI? Uh, I don't know offhand. We will have to look that up. Just a second. Yeah, it was it was Pius XI. Pius XI, okay. Yeah, Pius XI, <laughs> Mussolini's Pope, and by many considered a, a great hero of science, and he got the Nobel Prize in 1909. The Pope did? No, no, Marconi did. <laughs> but uh, Marconi, okay. right. in the end, towards the end of his life, became a great supporter of the fascist regime. And uh, there was a mutual respect and using each other's um, talents as well. Hmm. Radio later on became a big thing in the propaganda machine, both in that of uh, Mussolini's and that of Hitler's. Yeah. But what's mind-blowing about this is that it's such a milestone in something that has become an integral part of our lives. We cannot imagine our lives without radio waves, without... We don't even imagine radio waves because it's so natural to all of us to use wireless machines and wireless equipment. Back then it wasn't. So, yeah. That was this week in skeptical, or probably more like science history for this week. <laughs> the 12th of December, 1901. All right. Now that we mentioned the Pope and the Vatican, have you got something to poke the Pope for, Pontus? No, I don't have a Pope today. But next week, finally, I will be able to tell you about the outcome of the Vatican so-called trial of the century <gasps> this trial is scheduled to be concluded this week that we are recording but we haven't seen results yet so uh, i'm very excited about this uh, will a sitting cardinal for the first time in modern history be sentenced criminally and in this case it will be for financial shenanigans if he is found guilty shenanigans i think that's the legal term <laughs> yes. and perhaps yeah even more exciting, will the outcome show that the legal system of the Vatican is deeply flawed or perhaps even a joke? A lot is already pointing in that direction. But stay tuned for next week where we will dig into this. 
<laughs> and awesome. in the meantime, this week, do we know if uh, Frankie actually made it to COP28 or... Oh, yeah. No, he did not. He, he, did not. he talked mm. about that, I think, already last week. He, he, he decided not to go. He has uh, he skipped two Angelus prayers after each other, but then he made a new appearance uh, midweek, I believe, or was it last Friday, uh, in a sort of Angelus, extra Angelus prayer, where he did uh, show himself at the window and spoke to the people on the uh, St. Peter's Square. So he seems to be on demand. Okay, okay. When when you say he said he made an appearance, it's like a revelation of some sort. Or no, it was a regular one this this time. An apparition. <laughs> it was not an appar- apparition. It was just an appearance. Okay, he's still alive. I will yeah. let you know when <laughs> there's going to be magic involved. Okay, all right, <laughs> all right. So um, with no pope to be poked, let's see what else is new around Europe. Right, yes, let's start in Sweden this time. Several times I have expressed my frustration with the legal system or when the legal system is ruling on scientific issues, more specifically when they have awarded damages to people who claim that a certain product have uh, been the cause of their cancer or other serious illness. I don't like it because that's a medical assessment, that's a scientific assessment. It's not really for the legal system to decide. But now it has happened again with the Swedish court ruling in favor of damages. But this time, I actually think it was the right decision. So what's happening here? Are you guys familiar with PFOS or PFOS, also known as per? Perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, and I may be on acid when I'm saying this, but <laughs> that is uh, the, the technical term. I will not try to repeat it. Uh, ever heard of it? No, not really. No, but uh, based on the name, I can start imagining something. But um, yeah, okay. I'm building up the molecule in my head, but um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. Okay. I will not go too deeply into the chemical composition of PFOS because A, I don't know much about chemistry and B, it doesn't really change this story very much. So the important part is that this is a compound that is toxic, though not very much in the short run. So it's not acutely toxic. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's more long term. It is also man-made. It doesn't normally occur in nature, and it is extremely stable, so stable that it doesn't degrade at all, really. If you release it into nature uh, or get it into your body, it basically stays there for a long time or forever almost. So PFOS has been used for several things, but for this story, the key thing is that it is the key ingredient in something called Skydrol, which I think is a brand. But it is a fire-resistant hydraulic fluid used in commercial aviation. In this legal case, PFOS has been used for several years near an airport uh, in Sweden at a place where they practice how to extinguish fire, fire drills, basically. And over the years, so much PFOS has leaked into the groundwater that it has polluted the drinking water in the neighborhood. And the safe level, just to give an... (laughs) Background here. The safe level is calculated to be 90 nanograms per liter. Then it's safe. 
The groundwater in this area has been found to contain 250,000 mm. nanograms per liter. Oh, yeah. So that's almost 3,000 times the safe level. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. In my scientific assessment, that is bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really yeah. bad. Really so like um, not surprisingly, several forms of cancer have uh, affected the local population to a higher degree than what is normal. I mean, cancer occurs more or less randomly all the time. But you can see that this is, this is not normal. There have been a long legal process, but last week the Swedish Supreme Court ruled that 154 local persons do have right to damages due to being exposed to PFOS through the water. And I wanted to bring this up because it's obviously very different compared to when one person, we talked about that a couple of years ago, he was awarded damages by the producer of Roundup. Roundup has no scientifically proven evidence that it is causing cancer, whereas PFOS is clearly dangerous in long exposure to it. And even you can never prove that one individual cancer case was the cause by this specific thing. It could just be a random thing. But if you have a whole population or even a small population where you can see the frequency statistically, cancer cases are if not through the roof they are more than what you would expect that's different i think than the roundup example so we know that pfos is cancerogenic if you're exposed to it for a long time and in high doses so we have very good reason to believe that these cancer cases were caused by this so in this case, that's why I do approve of this. If you have science behind what you're saying, mm-hmm. if you have a statistic thing to point to a certain population, this is you can draw a very clear conclusion that this is caused by this. Now, of course, one of these 154 people perhaps would have gotten cancer anyway. But you can't prove that. Mm. You don't know because it was just a statistical thing. Some people do get cancer. But I think in this case, you can't try to single that person out. You say, okay, we award damages to everyone because you've all been exposed to this and we can't tell whether you would have gotten cancer anyway. So so an example that uh, actually sometimes it's right mm-hmm. when uh, the legal system do take these decisions. Yeah. And I think there are political systems or legal systems that have to make decisions. And there's also a new agreement out because the EU agreed on a historic deal with the world's first laws to regulate AI. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think that's really interesting, but I want to tell you more about it first. They called it historic themselves. Um, <laughs> and they reached this agreement on the world's first comprehensive laws to regulate AI or artificial intelligence social media and search engine. It was a 37-hour negotiation between the European Parliament and the member states, and it's described as historic by Thierry Breton, or Breton, I don't... (laughs) Breton, (laughs) I don't know how to pronounce him, but dear listeners, you can always send that in. He's the European Commissioner. And the laws cover uh, major tech companies like X, formerly known as Twitter, TikTok, Google, you name it, Meta. And the EU now takes the lead in that because they regulating AI basically as the first group with the laws. And their laws are set to take effect around 2025. The laws address issues like foundation models, AI-driven surveillance, 
real-time emotional recognition and so on. And this is where the regulation really comes in. Because what we don't want, of course, is this, um, in German, we call it Gläserner Bürger, so like glass citizen. That, glass? Uh, yeah, that you do not have any secrets anymore. Ah. Um, because okay. AIs could technically, like with the help of CCTV, they could technically dict detect um, stress and then could predict if someone is likely to commit a crime. Mm. But uh, if they predict wrongly and you're just really stressed, then that's also completely against human rights. Yeah. So Minority report comes to mind. <laughs> yeah, or like Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there are yeah. several um, ideas <laughs> of like dystopian uh, futures that come to mind there. Yes, and um, wow. they want to ban certain applications, except in specific circumstances. For example, they want to ban this real-time emotional recognition unless they are um, really looking for someone who committed a big crime. They have a risk-based uh, tiered system. The highest risk category is defined by the number of computer transactions that are needed to train the AI, the machine, which is called floating point operations per second or flops. <laughs> <laughs> and so far, there's only one model, and that is um, ChatGPT4 that falls under that definition. And yeah, the, so like higher levels of regulation are posed on machines that are, that can pose greater risks to health, safety and human rights. The EU want to guide AI development in the human centric direction. They want to learn from past mistakes in regulating large um, tech corporations because they want, don't want to stifle development. But they do want to also to the citizens to be safe, of course. So it's really always a, a fine balance. They hope that these regulations can be a model for other governments. And they also hope that AI companies will comply with the EU rules. Because if they do that, then they won't change the rule set outside of the EU. So it might actually regulated worldwide then. Because they don't, might not want to change their rules just to be outside of the EU. Yeah, it always has this a bit of like Matrix-esque uh, atmosphere, doesn't it? <laughs> In a way. <laughs> yeah. The difficult thing will be to get China and uh, Russia and yeah. other parties to also do the same thing. They won't, of course. Mm -hmm. They will just uh, do whatever they want. Well, this so. is just going back to human rights, isn't it? Like, <clears throat> mm. Yeah. The problem is that they may get advantages in AI development mm. because of this compared to Europe yeah. and, and US maybe. But also like on the other hand, you can't also not regulate it. <laughs> it's like No, no, no. But I see your point. But there's another problem that some uh, regulation needs to be in place even for them because they could easily get out of hand and bite them in the ass if they, they're not fast enough in going ahead and regulating it before it starts to grow. What the EU is doing is unique and it's really important. I mm -hmm. think it's already a little bit late to do that, but it's still way ahead of the others. Mm -hmm. And the dystopian ideas that emerge from the use of AI and what we fear usually, I don't think we've even seen the tip of the iceberg yet so it's just the tip of the tip <laughs> of the iceberg what we're seeing now of what potential it has in doing good and doing wrong as well so i have my doubts as to how mm -hmm. how effective the regulations can be but uh, but it's good to see that they are trying
And yeah, I think it's like someone has to do it, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is the issue with uh, some products like um, food supplements. They are massively underregulated. <laughs> so um, all, all across the world, and especially in the EU, there are no criteria. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I talked about it a few weeks ago, how it is in Germany, but I think mm. Germany is not the only problematic area. Yeah, and we know that they usually only need to state the actual contents. So what the ingredients are, and then you are free to market it. You don't have to have a proof of efficacy and a proof that it's free of side effects, which is probably not the case. Because if you put anything in your body, it can have an effect and a side effect as well. It's the case with foods, it's the case with all kinds of medicine. So it's important to know what the potential side effects could be. So in Hungary, a team of researchers and professionals from the field of marketing and producing dietary supplements teamed up and launched a website that is called Nutri Vigilancia. So Nutri Vigilance <laughs> is basically, this is the Hungarian word for that. For a Hungarian word, it sounds very understandable. <laughs> yes, it does, doesn't it? So the, the reason why they launched this website is because they are trying to give a platform for consumers and health professionals to report suspected side effects while using dietary supplements. Because we don't have a great database of those, we think of dietary supplements as something that is so natural. It's, it's so good. It's, it just gives you all the good stuff and it won't affect you badly, but it can. And it's analyzed by a team of professionals. So there is a scientific evaluation process of the actual signals reported. So they are trying to assess whether there is an actual link and a causal relationship between the reported signals and the actual food supplement. This is done to provide consumers and professionals as well with something that should be provided by the industry itself. A database, a data set of all the reported incidents. And it hasn't been around up until now, at least not in Hungary. So if someone listening to this knows about these kind of databases, I vaguely remember something that was done by the Nightingale collaboration. But I haven't had time to look up the, the details probably for, for next week. I can. I think it's a very important initiative and it should be seen all over the place wherever these food supplements and dietary supplements are marketed. Because we need the data in order to see clearly. We need clear data and we need critically analyzed data to be able to work with. So... Uh well done. The institutions involved are the Institute of Clinical Pharmacy of the University of Seged, the Samovais University, which is probably the most prestigious medical university in the country, and the Association of Hungarian Dietary Supplement Manufacturers and Distributors, the latter of which shows that there is interest in sealing clearly in the industry as well. It's just it hasn't been done before. Mm. Okay. Over to Denmark, then. Just like in Sweden, there has been many examples of uh, the Quran being burnt in Denmark over the last year or so. 
this has been a difficult issue to handle because it stirs up very violent emotions and reactions within local Muslim community, but also, of course, it hurts international relations. On the other hand, there should be freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and most of us are deeply against heresy laws, at least most of us in this podcast and I think in the skeptical community. It shouldn't be illegal to criticize religion, right? I mean, in fact, I do this almost every week on this podcast. But Denmark, they have now decided to ban the burning of the Quran. Peter Hummelgård, who is a social democrat, <laughs> said, quote, It harms Denmark and Danish interests, and it risks harming the security of Danes abroad and here at home, end quote. Okay, so that's why they're doing it. Well, there's two parties in the opposition who are who, they are against the law and they did push for a referendum on the question instead that didn't happen i'm not sure a referendum is the best way to solve these things anyway but the new law is now in effect as i understand it it is now illegal in denmark to burn holy books from religions that are recognized in denmark that is the definition if you break the law you could be punished with fines or up to two years in prison Now, I have criticized burning of the Quran on this podcast before, and I don't think that's the right way to go about it at all. I think burning of the Quran is stupid and childish and an ineffective way to oppose religion. If it has any effect at all, except pissing people off, is that it risks radicalizing some members of the Muslim community because they will feel that they are under threat and they need to defend their religion with force, perhaps. And, I mean, let people have their religion as long as it's not they're not trying to impose it on everybody else. So I don't think that's a good idea, but I'm even more against heresy laws. That has no place in an enlightened society, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and now I'm just hoping that Sweden will not follow Denmark's example, because I know that the Swedish politicians are looking at what's happening in Denmark for inspiration, if you will. Aye, aye. Aye, aye. Yeah, aye, aye. <laughs> I read an article in the Daily Mirror, and I also was really thinking of aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> Because here they are reporting about something that I'm like, how is it newsworthy but it's probably roughly related <laughs> to christmas time and christmas myths but let me just tell you the story first here a man is seeking advice on reddit on social media after discovering that his girlfriend who says she's a virgin is pregnant she took several pregnancy tests missed her period and is experiencing pregnancy symptoms like nausea. And It must be a miracle then. <laughs> yes. And then <laughs> she took several pregnancy tests. As I said, they're all positive, despite their agreement not to have sex. Now the boyfriend is, of course, very confused. Suspicious <laughs> even, probably. <laughs> well, they're both not suspicious in a way. <laughs> um, yeah. The boyfriend doesn't believe she cheated. He really doesn't think it. Um, she also swears she didn't. Yeah, and then people on, on Reddit said, like, maybe there's a possibility that she isn't pregnant, that there are medical issues, like a cyst that's giving off hormones, like CTG, and then yep. the, the pregnancy test looks pregnant, like, gives a positive result, but she isn't also. 
But they all just say like, please go to see a doctor. Some say go to immediate medical care because it could be time sensitive if it's like a, a huge cyst that could rupture or so on. Yeah. It could be, um, and I mean, like even if she's pregnant, however it does happen, <clears throat> it can still be like an ectopic pregnancy, which is something that's also really time sensitive. And of course, she lives in the same house as the boyfriend and the parents. So there could be an emotional aspect there. There could be things happening where she can't talk about intercourse that she had. I can think of several issues like what might have happened there. And yeah, so like it might also be important to contact an advice nurse there. To put it in a nutshell, in the mirror, it sounded a tiny bit like... Oh, yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it can be many things like we established that, but it can't be a miracle. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah. Probably not. And talking about giving advice, mm -hmm. the first advice is don't try to get help on Reddit. Yes. That's not where you go. Yes. Yeah. Also That's, not from this uh, podcast, but also definitely not on Reddit. <laughs> no. No. And it requires a bit of critical thinking to try to understand that it could be so many things behind yes. this phenomenon it's just a result even though it can be confusing it could mean a lot of things so yes. being all confused and going on reddit and then ending up in the mirror <laughs> that is not the way to deal with this it's uh, <laughs> i mean it could also have to do with trust in the medical system because i just thought if that would happen to me <laughs> if i would get pregnant okay. without intercourse or whatever <laughs> then the first thing i would do is call my gynecologist but yeah. maybe this girlfriend doesn't trust her gynecologist who knows but it's still something it's like maybe don't don't try to get help on reddit exactly <laughs> Yeah, and Reddit. So it's not, I'm going to discuss this with my friends, with my closest friends. No, you go on Reddit and you you basically announce it to the world <laughs> that this has <laughs> happened. But it, it shows you another thing that it's become so important for us to go online and try to find everything there. So we're seeking mm -hmm. help. Uh, that's going to be online. And this links back to the importance of AI as well. There will be mm -hmm. things that an AI-based help system can probably come up with. But if it's a well-trained AI, it would say that, okay, go see a doctor. <laughs> well, actually, like, um, got to confess that I did something like that. Not on Reddit, but I googled some symptoms because I wanted to write a story. It's a classical author thing of why is my <laughs> search history so horrible? Well, because you're writing a story. And I googled like symptoms of a concussion and like how can you get amnesia and stuff. And ChatGPT was just telling me the symptoms. I'm like, and it also was, you need help. Call one like 911. <laughs> like if you've experienced these symptoms, please go to hospital. They're already doing their due diligence. There. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hope it stays that way. All right. Mm -hmm. So speaking of critical thinking and critical thinking skills, that is very much of high demand at the moment mm -hmm. because of all the disinformation that is uh, spreading, especially when it comes to climate disinformation. They can be very, very persistent. Researchers at the University of Genf in Switzerland tried to investigate something experimentally across 12 countries with almost 7,000 participants trying to assess the effectiveness of different inoculation strategies when it comes to fighting disinformation regarding specifically climate science. 
they had control groups and they had inoculated groups. The inoculating strategies, there were six of them, providing the participants with the scientific consensus on climate change. And the other technique was to build a trust toward the scientists involved, listing all their credentials and their achievements and all that. There was a third technique of transparent communication about the issue. So when it comes to climate action, they try to show the participants both the advantages and the disadvantages from a financial point of view of different climate actions. There was one technique that involved a moral argument that climate action is a must. That is our moral obligation, our duty to do something because of the next generation. So there's a bit of an emotional side of it. Then there was one where the accuracy of the measurements, the accuracy of the scientific research was emphasized. And the sixth one was the use of positive emotions to change the attitudes toward climate action. Then, after the inoculation techniques were applied, they came up with 20 false and 20 real statements uh, regarding climate science and climate change. Now, the results are not very encouraging. So the problem is, and it seems to be, that first of all, it seems very, very obvious that climate disinformation is very persistent. It builds on human emotions, it builds on a lot of different pre-existing ideas and preconceptions and all that. The problem was that even though at the beginning it looked like the inoculation techniques worked, when the application of certain statements were spread out in time, the effect of the inoculation basically slowly but surely disappeared after a while. So it's a, it's a little bit depressing. <laughs> Because that shows you so. that mm-hmm. that shows you that it's even though you can do that, it's a bit of a perpetual action that you have to. It's it's like the unsinkable rubber duck, just as usual. So we're quite used to it. This as skeptics, right? Skeptical activists, we are quite used to this phenomenon. But uh, to see the scientific proof that uh, this is the case. Yeah, well, there were certain differences as to which inoculation technique was was used, but eventually all of them faded away. Yeah. So on that very very positive note, <laughs> we are closing <laughs> our news segment here. <laughs> so I'm wondering if we can hand out the really wrong award to someone this week. Yes, and uh, going from one positive thing to another. Yeah. No, it's uh, sadly not really positive. It's not a really right award. It's a really wrong award, of course. (laughs) I will just spoil it and tell you that I will give it to the anti-choice Christians. Uh, They're not called like that, but they are anti-choice in the British Parliament because they launched a triple attack on abortion rights. They work under the label, and I'm quoting from a sign, return to the God that made us great. (laughs) So, yes. But I want to tell you more about what happened first, because these Christians have launched three new bills in the House of Lords that could potentially restrict women's legal abortion rights or everyone who's childbearing and their abortion rights. The bills are titled Fetal Sentience, Gestational Time Limit Reduction, and Early Medical Home Abortion. There you can already see that there's a very interesting um, focus on existing legal rights for women in England and Wales. 
These bills also follow an increasingly bigger campaign, so to say, of protests in front of abortion clinics in Scotland, England and Wales. The Humanist UK, I would almost give them, or I would probably give them a really red award for that. They are representing non-religious people and they are responding to this. They are urging the Home Secretary to implement legislation to provide protection for people facing abuse from anti-abortion protesters at these clinics. And I'm just like, how shitty can you be to protest in front of clinics? There are people walking out there that might have had the worst day of their lives and who are like physically and mentally just struggling. And then you just like hold whatever like a bloody sign in their face or even harass them. It's, it's not okay. Yeah, but going back to what Humanist UK are doing, they're campaigning to move abortion regulations from the criminal code to civil law, because this is actually, interestingly, the whole abortion law is still going back to 1861. Hmm. The good old days. Yes, yes. Yeah, the good old days. <laughs> it's like it's still Victorian, you know. <laughs> they're still working under the Offences Against the Person Act, where, where women are facing legal action. Yeah, humanists are, um, UK are working with MPs and peers to decriminalize abortion and are collecting signatures to support the implementation of safe access zones for these clinics and collaborate with abortion support organizations. It's, it's just so important to defend reproductive rights especially in a in a time where everyone's looking at the US with the Roe versus Wade era that's just ended and it's just important to continue advocating for this because this is a human right like we're going back to human rights again this is a human right and for a person to face prosecution to have a choice about their own body that's just not okay and to sum it all up for pushing their beliefs onto people who just want to have a choice about their own body. The anti-choice Christians active in the British Parliament receive this week's prize for being really wrong. Yeah, that's very well deserved. And I think uh, the Humanists UK are doing a good yes. job here to yes. fight it. Yeah, they usually do. All right. But that brings us to the end of today's show. And obviously, we cannot finish without a quote. So, have you got one for us, Sonny Cop? Yes, I do. And it's um, a long one. And that's why, although it is from a German, I didn't get it in German for you because otherwise it probably would have been a whole page <laughs> because we know that German <laughs> is always a bit longer <laughs> than, <laughs> than English. True that. So... I'll, I'll read it out in English and we're not in German. This quote is by Leonard Euler, or Euler as um, international people call him, which always makes me giggle because Euler and Euler just so sound so different. He was a um, Swiss mathematician, physician, no, sorry, physicist, astronomer, geographer, engineer, and so on and so on. And he did a lot of important discoveries and a lot of important mathematics and he lived from 1707 to 1783 so in the 18th century and he said the kind of knowledge which is supported only by observation and is not yet proved must be carefully distinguished from the truth it is gained by induction as we usually say yet we have seen cases in which mere induction led to error 
Therefore, we should take great care not to accept as true such properties of the numbers which we have discovered by observation and which are supported by induction alone. Indeed, we should use such a discovery as an opportunity to investigate more exactly the properties discovered and to prove or disprove them in both cases we may learn something useful. End quote. Oof, a long one. Yeah, but, uh, it's a long spoken one. Spoken like a true skeptic. Don't trust <laughs> yeah. yes. anything. Just make sure that you prove it first. Exactly. You can basically break it down to the first sentence that is something that you only observe and that you can't prove is not the truth. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, there you All go. Right. <laughs> thanks to Leonard Euler for saying That's that. And <laughs> thanks to Annika for finding that. Thank uh, you. But indeed, I'd like to thank both of you for today, Annika and Pontus. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Many, many thanks to our listeners as well for tuning in. Please keep doing so. And tell your friends. Yes. Tell your friends, leave us reviews, share the episode on every platform that you can, because that is a great help to us. Shout it from the mountains. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. We'd like to put it to everyone's ears who might be interested, but they might not know about it. So help us with that, please. Yeah, you can support the show in other ways as well. Yes, you can go to patreon.com slash the ESP. Send us a little money every now and again. You can also go to the store that we have on oh, our yeah. webpage at theesp.eu mm -hmm. and you can buy a nice t-shirt or a yeah. mug or a hat or whatever we can find there. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, we thank everyone who has ever uh, supported us or continues to do so. But until next week, goodbye. Tschüss. Hello. Vislat. This has been your ESP experience. The show is produced and recorded by the ESP.eu. Join us again next time, but until then, please send your feedback, comments or death threats to info at the ESP.eu. We would also love to hear your ideas and suggestions regarding future episodes, as well as news from your country of residence that might interest others across the continent. If you have a local event or organization to promote, please don't hesitate to let us know, as we are more than happy to help. All music in the program was written and performed by Keisha J. Gray and George Schraub and is used with their permission. Please check out our webpage at www.theesp.eu, follow us on Twitter at espodcast.eu and like us on Facebook. I don't know how you can believe Are you laughing at something else? I'm laughing at pissed off. Ah, okay. Pissed okay. I, I was I was just asking because of the delay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I I know it wasn't that good. <laughs> so, thanks for the sympathy laugh. <laughs> okay. Just a second. No, 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 no. Yeah. Leo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. No, no, no. No, no, no. It was it was Pius the yeah, 11th. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It was Pius the Pius 11th. Pius the 11th, okay. Yeah, yeah. Who claim that a certain product... Product. Certain product Spread. have... Uh, the Institute of... Inst sorry, the Institute of... Fuck. Institute.
<laughs> is the Institute of Clinical Pharmacy of the University of Seged. Aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> aye, aye, Captain. <laughs> well, it was more like aye, 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 aye. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, 